Well, good morning once again. Good to see you. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is John. I serve Mission Church as one of the pastors. I'm delighted to be with you this morning, especially as we begin uh, this next installment in our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We are diving into Matthew chapter 5, which of course begins the, what is called the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be studying Christ's Sermon on the Mount over the next couple months. Many believe this to be the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Matthew chapters 5-7 through seven is a goldmine of biblical truth. It is also a crash course on discipleship. In fact, as we spend time studying this great sermon, we'll see how we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. You see, there's a, a now, not yet reality to our citizenship, meaning that it's true that we are awaiting the full manifestation of the kingdom of God which will take place as Jesus returns. However, we are citizens of God's kingdom now and we should be pursuing a life that reflects this reality. And the Sermon on the Mount provides us with the standards of the Christian life. The sermon begins with a preamble known as the Beatitudes and can be found in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have some out on the bookshelf out there. We also have these Scripture journals. There's several out there. If you don't have one, feel free to grab one. You can take your notes and write in these journals. These are a gift to you. So if you'd like one, even now, feel free to get up and grab a Scripture journal. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And when you're there, I want to invite you, if you're able to, to stand for the reading of God's Word. There are eight Beatitudes, but this morning we're going to work through the first seven, which will take us up to verse 9. Verse 9. Hear the Word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. When He saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Then He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. As we dive into Your Sermon on the Mount, Lord Jesus, I pray that You would soften our hearts to a greater understanding of who You are and the life that You've called us to live as Your followers. God, I pray that this text will draw us closer to You, away from looking to ourselves and our goodness and our righteousness to try to earn our way to anything, Lord, and we would see clearly that You and You alone are the one who has paved the way for us to be able to stand before a holy and righteous God. Lord, that it's only through Your life and Your death and Your resurrection that we can even attempt to live a life such as as You stated in these verses. Lord, I pray that You would be glorified this morning. Soften our hearts. Get rid of the calluses that have built up due to unrepentant sin or, or unbelief. Replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that we might see You and know You and love You and follow You. God, we're desperate for You and we need You this morning. We give You all the glory. I pray as I preach this morning that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. 
God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a craving for happiness and contentment. A longing for wholeness. A yearning to flourish that is hardwired into the human framework. Our culture and society has attempted to offer solutions to satisfy our cravings. In fact, even our Constitution protects the right to the pursuit of happiness, which is often called the American dream, which is an idea that attempts to encapsulate all the ambitions, the hopes, and the longings that are inherently human. In other words, this idea would say if you want to flourish as a human, if you want to find wholeness and completeness and happiness, then look no further than the prosperity, affluence, success, and independence that the American dream provides. Which sounds great, doesn't it? The problem here is that it's not real. The world's offer of happiness is a mirage. It's, it's subjective. It's fleeting. It's entirely dependent upon circumstance. Unfortunately, so many have bought into this lie, this scam with our hope. We've bought into it with our dreams, our time, our energy, and our resources, only to be left in despair, only to be left wanting, to be left with the carpet ripped out from under our feet over and over again. Tell me, is there any hope for a deeper and lasting joy? Is it possible to flourish is it possible to find contentment and wholeness? A wholeness that's not affected by the world or affected by circumstance. According to society and culture, the pursuit of happiness and the American dream is, is a vision of how life should be, but the kingdom of God offers us something so much better. A better vision. In fact, Jesus offers a new approach to living. One that results in joy instead of despair. In peace instead of conflict. You see, it's because of the fact that Jesus offers us a blessedness that is not produced by the world and is not dependent upon our circumstance. And it's because of that that you and I, as we follow Jesus, can find a lasting joy. Friends, Jesus is offering you a new pursuit. A new way of living. Kingdom living. Let's take a look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he, he being Jesus, went up on the mountain. Now, it wasn't by accident that Jesus begins this sermon on a mountain. Rather, it's, it's quite intentional. It points to Jesus as the new and better Moses. We should be reminded of Matthew chapter 2. A few months ago, we saw how Jesus, as, as a child, he was providentially delivered from the massacre of children in Bethlehem. A deliverance that was reminiscent of Moses' own childhood rescue from Pharaoh's mass murder of children in Egypt. Here in verse 1 we read, He went up on the mountain, which is the same exact wording that we read in Exodus chapter 19 when Moses also went up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive God's law. You see, just as Moses went up on the mountain, Matthew is telling us, so did Jesus. And in the same way that Moses speaks with authority, we see Jesus also speaking with the authority of a king. 
just as Moses authored the five books, the first five books of the Old Testament, Matthew's Gospel is designed around five teachings of Jesus. See, the whole point of this is that there's a new authority that has arrived on the scene. And this new authority, His name is Jesus. And Jesus, well, He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the One who is greater than Moses. And He has come to deliver His people from brokenness and the curse of sin and death. Now, not only is Jesus the long-awaited Messiah, but He, in this beginning of this sermon, He is showing that He is inaugurating a new kingdom. The long-awaited kingdom. Look back at verse 1-2. through When He saw the crowds, He went up to the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Then He began teaching them. The point and the function of this sermon is to present us with a picture of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. In this sermon, Matthew 5-7, through over the next couple months, as we begin to look through this sermon, what's going to happen is it's going to serve as a mirror. And it's going to reflect our sin back to us to show us that it's only by God's grace that we can even enter into the kingdom and become citizens and to live as kingdom citizens. And at the same time, He's going to show us the blessedness that comes with life lived in the kingdom of God. Understand, this was God's intention all along from the very beginning. Not just to give us commandments, but to, get, to, to create a new people with new hearts and new affections and new attitudes. And as we study this sermon over the next several weeks, we will see the type of life that you and I as followers of Jesus should be aspiring to live. The kind of virtue that the, the Holy Spirit is, is developing and producing in us. The kind of character that we should be striving for and by God's grace working towards. Ultimately, this sermon shows us the type of life, the blessed life, the life of flourishing that we were meant to live A life that was broken and marred by sin. But the good news of the kingdom of God is that God, in Christ, is restoring mankind, restoring creation from brokenness to blessedness. Which is why Jesus begins His sermon with this word. Blessed. Verse 3, blessed. There's so much packed into this one word. It's extremely important and carries so much weight. The Greek word is makarios, which is often translated, and maybe in some of your other English versions of the Bible, it says happy or excited or thankful. And all those, these are correct translations. This word means so much more than simply happy or even blessed. And to reduce this word that Jesus is using to a subjective state or feeling would be to miss all that Jesus is saying here. See, Jesus is not simply declaring how you should feel. Rather, He's making an objective statement about what God thinks of you. In other words, to be blessed means that you have found the approval of God. Now, of course, being approved by God will bring feelings of happiness. Generally, those who are blessed will be happy, but we must remember that the root idea of this word blessed is an awareness that you are approved by God. It's not a nice wish from God, but it's a pronouncement of who you actually are as followers of Jesus. Approved. Tell me, Whose approval do you seek in your life? 
Is it God's approval that you seek? Does God's approval mean more to you than anyone else's? Honestly, does God's approval mean more to you than the approval of your parents, your friends, your coworkers, or even your social media followers? Do you want God's approval more than anyone else's? Tell me, who is bigger in your life? Is it God or is it people? Because it's only when God is the one who is big in your life It's only when you seek the approval of God above anyone else's that these beatitudes will penetrate your heart and speak to you in the deepest possible way as they describe the wholeness, the flourishing that you can have as citizens in the kingdom of God. For each beatitude speaks to what it means to live with wholeness, to live with integrity, They speak and they provide an objective state of joy that's not dependent upon circumstance or external factors. In other words, as Jesus points to each character trait here, He's pointing to who you and I were created to be. He's describing to us the blessed life, the the approved life, the good life. He's revealing to us how life was supposed to be before sin infected us. He's describing His own life as the perfect man. And who you and I, as we follow Jesus, who we are becoming through faith and by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at the first one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, to be poor in spirit is to recognize that you are a sinner. It's to recognize your complete inability to reconcile and reform yourself. Poverty of spirit is a conscious confession of unworthiness before God. In other words, it is the deepest, the deepest form of repentance. It's the confession that you are sinful and that you, are, you have absolutely no moral virtues that could earn or deserve God's love or forgiveness. See, poverty of spirit is a general confession of your need for God and the humble admission of helplessness without Him. Friends, this is extremely countercultural. For we live in a time and space that admires self-reliance. We admire those who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and refuse help from anyone. In fact, the world has its own ideas of blessedness. Blessed is the man who is always right. Blessed is the man who is strong. Blessed is the man who rules. Blessed is the man who is satisfied with himself. Blessed is the man who is rich. Blessed is the man who is popular. You see, culture preaches that the answer to your life is found in yourself. But Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to come to the recognition that the answer is not found in you. In fact, that's where the problem starts. Your heart, your desires are utterly and completely sinful. And the only hope that you have is to recognize that you are in need of God's grace and mercy. Don't miss the fact that this first beatitude declares in and of itself that we do not have the spiritual resources to put into practice anything that Jesus is about to instruct us to do in the rest of these beatitudes. Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot fulfill God's standards on our own. Rather, we must come to Him, recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We must empty ourselves of anything, any uh, any self-righteousness, 
any moral self-esteem, for it is only when we are completely empty that He will fill us. I'm reminded of one of my favorite hymns, a song that we sing here at Mission, Rock of Ages, which says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you see yourself as helpless? As a spiritual beggar whose only hope is in Jesus? If so, rejoice in the truth that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven now and forever. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Next, Jesus says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning now is the emotional counterpart to being poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who lament, just like we did earlier. Blessed are those who grieve over their sinfulness and the sinfulness of the world around them. Now, this seems like an oxymoron. How can you be happy when you are mourning? This makes no sense. How can someone who is mourning be happy but understand Jesus is not blessing all kinds of mourning? For example, God's not promising to comfort everyone who mourns for whatever reason it is that they are mourning. This past week, my son mourned that he had to clean his room and he was not comforted. I mourned the loss of the Kansas City Chiefs to the Lions and I was not comforted. You see, friends, God promises blessing and comfort to those who mourn their sin. Those who recognize that they are sinners and they mourn and they grieve and they lament the sin in their life. In other words, when we see God for who He is and we see ourselves for who we are, the result is that we're heartbroken and overwhelmed with grief because of the sin that we have committed against a holy and righteous and just God. In other words, in the light of God's holiness, we can see the blackness and the vileness of our sin and the sin of the world around us. I'm reminded of the prophet Isaiah who was given a vision of God in which the angels of heaven were covering their face and they were crying out in worship, Holy! 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 And Isaiah's response was complete devastation. In fact, he says this in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Brothers and sisters, when you sin, does your heart break? Is your soul crushed? When you observe the sin that exists in the world around you, does it grieve you? Now, I get it. Mourning is not natural to us. In fact, it requires a change of heart. It requires Jesus to change you from the inside out. And friends, this is good news because it means that repentance of sin and mourning and grief over sin is a gift and a grace of God. Not only that, but Jesus says that mourners will be comforted with the truth that Jesus has come to save sinners from their sin. And the truth that Jesus paid sin's ransom and has gifted those who have trusted in Him with His perfect righteousness. 
And as a perfect of a comfort that those truths of the Gospel are. And how much those truths should give us rest and confidence. There's even a greater truth that should comfort us. You see, there is going to be a day when a new heaven and a new earth, the Kingdom of God, will be consummated. And God Himself will wipe every tear from the eyes of those who once mourned. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. But in the meantime, as we experience these truths. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus goes on to say in verse 5, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Some translations say blessed are the meek, or blessed are the gentle. You could also say blessed are the the lowly, or the self-forgetful. At first sight here, when I read this, it's like, did Jesus make a mistake? How can the humble and the meek inherit anything? That's not how the world around us works. Life simply just doesn't work this way. It seems much more accurate to say, blessed are the proud. Blessed are the strong and the self-sufficient. Blessed are the capable, the aggressive, the ambitious, the intimidating. In fact, the last thing the average man wants to be known for is his meekness and gentleness. But I think that's because the average man doesn't understand the power of meekness and gentleness and humility that Jesus is pointing us to here. First of all, meekness is not weakness. Humility does not point to cowardness or spineless timidity. To be gentle does not mean that you're willing to have peace at any cost. Neither does it mean indecisiveness or wishy-washiness or a lack of confidence. Humbleness does not mean withdrawn or shy or even nice. Rather, humbleness and meekness speaks of self-control. The person who is meek is able to balance their anger. Humbleness is a great power, is a great strength under control. The humble person is strong and knows how to properly use their strength for the weak, for the downcast and outcast. Rather than retaliating against those who do evil, he exhibits love. He fearlessly stands in defense of those who need defense, fearlessly stands up for the truth. How? Well, the one who is meek has a gentle spirit because he trusts God. And he knows that God is in complete control of every situation. He rests confidently in the sovereignty and the providence of God. Humbleness also means that you're not thinking about yourself. You're not sensitive or defensive. You don't wallow in self-pity or self-loathing. It means that you're not worried about what other people say or, or think about you as you pursue a life that lives like Jesus, loves Jesus, and leads others to Jesus. The humble man or woman understands what it means to submit to God, to trust in God's goodness, in God's providence. In other words, the humble don't fight for their own agenda. They don't push their preferences or priorities. They don't assert themselves for recognition so that they might be known. Instead, there's a blessed self-forgetfulness to their existence as they work to make Jesus known. Jesus says the humble will receive an incredible reward. He says, for theirs, for they will inherit the earth. Now what in the world does that mean? Inherit the earth. Well, It points to a future reality and it points to a present reality. It means that in the future, we will rule alongside our King. 
It also means that right now the humble and the meek can experience a rich and fulfilling life here on earth for they are not controlled by material possessions. They are not tempted to pursue social status or power. Rather, they can find contentment and satisfaction in their relationship with God. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst are physical cravings, and they do not go away until you eat or drink. Jesus says, Blessed are the people who in the same way long and crave for righteousness. Long and crave and thirst for God's presence. I'm reminded of Psalm 42. We sang this morning this song. And we talked about it just a month or so ago. But as the deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for You, God. I thirst for You, God. The living God. Blessed is the one who thirsts for God, who is not satisfied without being in God's presence, without being in God's Word, without being in prayer. The one who thirsts for the fellowship of the saints and the, and the, the corporate gathering of the church and to worship the Lord. You hunger and you, you thirst for sound biblical teaching. You hunger and thirst to be filled with God's righteousness. This hunger longs for God's Word. And it has a life-changing effect. You see, the blessed man or woman gets hungry when they are separated from God's Word. But the good news is this. Jesus says, blessed are you. If this is you, if you are hungering and thirsting after God, He says you will be satisfied. Both in Christ and in His kingdom. See, in this one verse is a beautiful picture of the Gospel. It points to the truth that is the, it is the Holy Spirit who hunger, awakens this hunger within you. This is not a hunger that you create on your own. The Holy Spirit awakens this hunger for the Lord within your soul. He is the one who gives you a longing to be right with God, to be forgiven, to be reconciled. He produces in you a thirst for salvation for a relationship with God, for a cleansing from your sin. And when this hunger and when this thirst and this longing is awakened in you, it drives you to pursue an answer to your longing, which is Jesus. And Jesus, what does He do? He quenches your thirst for righteousness by giving you His own. He gives you the Holy Spirit who actively works to change your desires, enables you to reject sin, to repent of sin, to pursue holiness. Tell me, is your soul hungry this morning? Is it thirsty? Then run to the well of Christ and drink up because it is a well that never runs dry. Drink freely of His goodness and His grace for He promises not only will you be satisfied, but you will never thirst again. Jesus continues and says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? Well, it means to give help to the broken. To give help to the miserable. It speaks to a compassionate action that is done to alleviate the distress of the miserable. I'm reminded of a story of a 19th century preacher who happened to cross a friend whose horse had just been accidentally killed. In the crowd of onlookers, they shared empty words of sympathy. I'm so sorry. 
preacher stepped forward and said with, to the loudest sympathizer, I'm sorry, five pounds. How much are you sorry? And then he passed his hat. True mercy demands action. It doesn't mean that God will only show you as much mercy to you as you show others. This is not a legalistic idea. Rather, Jesus is saying if you are unmerciful to others, then you're so unaware of how miserable you are that you think you have no need for God's mercy. When you withhold that action from those who are in desperate need, you're not really aware of the need that you have that He is fulfilling. In other words, the unmerciful is unable to picture himself as a miserable and wretched sinner in need of God's grace and mercy. D.A. Carson says it like this, the person who knows his spiritual bankruptcy, grieves over his pitiful condition, submits his will to God's will in all things, and longs for godly righteousness, shows mercy to the poor and needy because he knows himself to be poor and needy. In other words, how much mercy you show is the direct result of how much mercy you know. The merciful person remembers his own sin. The merciful person knows what what God has shown to him. He understands the weakness of others and is patient with them, is kind and willing to forgive. If you truly are a follower of Jesus, then you know that you are an object of God's mercy. As a result, then you will be merciful. Showing mercy is an evidence that you have, in fact, received mercy. Here's the paradox. If you're not merciful, it's not because God has been unwilling to show you mercy. It's that you are unable to receive His mercy. Salvation, in and of itself, is God's mercy. Salvation is God pitying you in your wretchedness enough to act and do something about it. But if your heart is hard then you are incapable of receiving God's mercy. It is only those whose hearts who have been softened are able to receive God's mercy and thereby be a conduit of God's mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Next, Jesus says what could possibly be the most challenging of all the Beatitudes. Verse 8, He says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, I don't know about you, but when I I read this, and I've studied this text many times, I find it a bit discouraging. Think about this. Who in here has a pure heart? Who has a heart of undivided loyalty? Who has a heart of undivided loyalty and love for the Lord alone? If we were to be honest with ourselves and honest with others, we would admit that none of our hearts are completely pure. Our hearts are divided. At times, our hearts can be selfish and and foolish and deceitful. Consider what Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9. He says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's incurable. There's nothing you can do to fix that. Who can understand it? We rationalize the irrational. We defend the indefensible. We harbor malice and lust and covetousness. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible points to this reality. And so when we read that only the pure in heart are going to see God, this truth should drive us to our knees and plead with God for mercy. This beatitude forces us to come to the end of ourselves. 
realizing that no matter how well we try to obey God, no matter how religious we are or how moral we are, it doesn't matter what kind of fundamental legalistic boundaries we place in our lives, our hearts are inherently wicked. There's nothing that we can do to make our hearts pure. So what do we do? What hope do we have? Well, friends, we need a new heart. We need a heart transplant. You see, we will not obtain purity of heart simply by doing our best or imitating Christ even, but by being incorporated into Christ. And that's the promise. That when you turn to the Lord, you submit to Him as your King and and receive Him as your Savior. You are incorporated into Him. You can't get a pure heart by simply trying your best to live like Him. But when you are incorporated into Jesus, you receive by grace a new heart. He takes your wicked heart, your heart of stone, and He replaces it with a heart of flesh that is sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. You receive a heart of flesh, a heart transplant. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see God, turn from self righteousness turn from your your moral pursuit of earning God's love and forgiveness and trust in Jesus because it's only through Jesus alone that you will receive this new heart and see God as Jesus promises here you will not just know about God, but you will know Him. How amazing is this? That you and I, from no assistance of ourselves, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, receive a new heart, which paves a way for us to see, to know, and to obey God. He's the one that gives you a new heart. He is the one who empowers you to obey Him. He is the one who does all the work. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. Next, Jesus says, and this is, where we'll end this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, we need to understand that there's a difference between peacekeeper and peacemaker. There's a difference between peacemaker and someone who simply avoids conflict to keep the peace. That's not a peacemaker. Rather, a peacemaker is painfully honest about the brokenness of the world And when he's at odds with others, he doesn't avoid them. But he acknowledges the tension. And even at the risk of personal pain or ego, he actively pursues wholeness and reconciliation. Each and every Sunday as we come to the Lord's table, there's a present reality to this meal in which we say we cannot, as Christians, come to the table and partake of this meal harboring bitterness and unforgiveness to another brother and sister in Christ especially in light of what God has done, but we should be peacemakers and take the initiative to go and reconcile and pursue peace. It's a picture of the Gospel. It's a picture of the Kingdom. It's a picture of the life we have called, been called to live. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, which says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is an active instruction. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit the bond of peace. Romans 14.9 says, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. And then Romans 12 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peacemaking from these verses 
is active. St. Francis of Assisi understood this and he prayed this prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of Thy peace. Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union in place of discord. Peacemakers have the ability to do this because they are filled with the peace of the Lord. They are honest about the state of the relationships around them, whether in the church or in the world. They are honest about what's in their own hearts. They're sensitive to where others are. They're willing to risk pain. They're willing to risk misunderstanding. They're willing to risk ego and the opinion of others to resolve conflict, to make things right, to point people to the beauty of the Gospel and the peace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate peacemaker, who came and lived and died a death that we deserve and rose from the grave so that you and I can be reconciled to God and so that we can be reconciled to one another. Peacemakers will fight for peace. Jesus says, these peacemakers... They're mine. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. They're mine. They're my sons. They're my daughters. For God is a peacemaker. He's made peace between Him and us. Jesus saw the gravity of our problem and He refused to sweep it under the rug. He knew the action that it needed to be taken to make peace. Only a drastic solution would suffice. And so He made peace. How? Through His blood. Not only did Jesus make it possible for us to have peace with God and peace amongst ourselves, but He gave us an example of how we should live this life. He says this is how to do it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3-8 through says this, This is how to be a peacemaker. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but interest, rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. Jesus never once grasped for glory. He never once grasped for dignity, but instead he humbled himself. In the same way, as we follow Jesus, you and I will be willing to lower ourselves. We will be willing to lose our dignity and our ego and the opinion of others in order to bring peace with others. Friends, this is not seen, this is seen the most clearly in the Great Commission. Peacemaking, the ultimate action of peacemaking is. Evangelism is sharing the Gospel, is, is getting out of yourself and out of the fear of other people's opinion to share the Gospel and share the faith with other people so that they too can find the ultimate peace in their life between them and the Lord. The first step to peacemaking is sharing your faith. With Je- uh, you're sharing the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are far from the Lord. Now, We work through seven of these eight Beatitudes. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the last one and look at what is it the result of living this way. But before we do, the fact of the matter is, this is a bit overwhelming. And if you feel overwhelmed this morning, good. That means I did my job. Because the whole point of these Beatitudes is to point you away from looking to yourself for the answer to point you away from navel-gazing and to see that Jesus is your only hope in life and death. 
None of us are naturally inclined to live this life. The Beatitudes are not meant to be some sort of personality test. Like, let's see who's merciful and let's see who's, who, who has a pure heart. No. What Jesus is doing here is He's mercifully driving you back to Himself. Let's be honest. Some of you here this morning, you might say that Jesus' description of kingdom living is completely foreign to you. And extremely overwhelming. And what Jesus is trying to do this morning is to help you reach the end of yourself. To help you see that you are in fact poor in spirit. To lead you to mourn over the truth that you have sinned against God. And to find comfort in the good news of God's grace and mercy for you. Jesus wants you to see that you do not have a pure heart, but you need one. To see that you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness as you should, but that you need to. Jesus wants to lead you to a place where you will actually humble yourself, accept His invitation to enter His kingdom by grace through faith in Him, and then empower you with the work of the Holy Spirit to become this kingdom citizen that He describes here. To become more and more like Jesus. That He will do that. And then when we stand before Him, the Bible says in 1 John that we will then become as He is. What a day that will be. For others of you, you have trusted in Jesus. And this sermon is supposed to impact you in the same exact way. Each time you and I, brothers and sisters, read these Beatitudes, we're supposed to be reminded of the life that we have been called to pursue. To repent of the areas in which we're not doing so well. And to be once again drawn to the cross of Christ. To be broken of our pride. To be broken of our self-reliance. And to be overwhelmed once again by the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would know confidently that Jesus is just. And Jesus is faithful to forgive you of your sin. And run to Him. Ultimately, these beatitudes are a mirror to drive us to salvation, to drive us to a vision that, that moves us towards transformation. Brothers and sisters, God can and He will develop these attitudes of kingdom living in you. For this is the life that Jesus came to make possible. I plead with you this morning, desperately seek after Jesus. Depend on His grace. Long for holiness. Ask Jesus to work in you and to help you live this blessed life life, the kingdom life, for this is the only life that will produce a lasting joy in you that is not dependent upon circumstance or external factors. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for these Beatitudes, this picture of what kingdom living looks like. We thank You, Lord, for revealing to us the areas in which we have not measured up. We thank You for Your mercy that we can run to You in our time of need and find forgiveness. And not only find forgiveness, Lord, but we thank You for Your Holy Spirit empowering us to live this life. Lord, help us to leave here this morning. Lord, You've equipped us today. I pray, Lord, that we would leave here focused on pursuing a life that matches these qualities and where we err, that we would run to the cross and find rest and comfort in the good news of the Gospel. Lord, as we prepare to come to Your table, as we reflect 
on your life, your death, and your resurrection. Lord, reveal areas in our life in which we need to repent. Lead us confidently into the throne room of grace. Help us to rest in the assurance of the gospel. Help us to leave here with hope that you are returning. And until that day, Lord, we can find confidence in your sovereignty and your providence. And we can find hope that you will return and make all things new. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.